forgot to dismiss before this, but Matthew chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 14. If you need a Bible, there should be one in the seat back in front of you, and if you need to take that with you, please feel free to do so. While you're turning there in your Bibles, the empty first few rows reminds me of a church I used to pastor down south, and it seemed like it was twice as long as this sanctuary. And it had a middle aisle and two rows of pews, and everybody, there was only like 13 people there, but they all sat in the back two pews. And uh, the first time I had somebody fill the pulpit for me, he told me, he said, it was so odd. He's like, I had to move your pulpit all the way to the back of the church so the people could hear me. And uh, so we, they were true back row Baptists uh, down there. All right, as you made your way there, let's pause and pray. Father, I know that you will be glorified. I know that uh, you will make yourself known to your people and even to those who are not yet your people. And I know that you'll do this through your word. And so I just ask that you would be pleased to accomplish that in this hour, that you would open our eyes to the things that the word lays bare before us, most importantly our own souls and hearts and minds. May you cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May you create in us those hearts that hunger and thirst for your righteousness. May you leave us in awe of your grace and mercy benevolently poured out upon us who don't deserve. And Lord, may we leave here uh, reveling and glorying in the fact that you are God and that you have come, and that you will come for us again. It's in Jesus' name I ask, amen. One thing that I really like about the Gospel of Matthew, and I've shared this on a Sunday night, is how often we get confrontation between or contrast between Jesus and the New Covenant and the kind of extra biblical tradition of the Pharisees and Sadducees uh, in this gospel. And I think that's important because it's really easy. It's really easy, right? When the, when the gospel is not explicit about something, when it's gray, uh, we are very quick to fill in those spots and kind of uh, place traditions or things on the same level as Scripture. And it's very easy for all of us to do. Very easy. So we must constantly check ourselves against the truth to make sure we're keeping in step with those things. And, and it's really awesome too, especially here in this scene, that 
Jesus is always confronting them with his presence, which is the very presence of God. Equally as amazing is the fact that they can't seem to see it, which would reveal to us what about the human heart? That it is not only desperately sick and wicked, but according to Ephesians 2, it's dead. That by sins and trespasses, we are dead spiritually. That, that God brings us from death to life, from darkness to light. And until he does that, we don't care. We don't care who he is. We don't care where he is. We don't care what he says. We don't care how good he is. So what we're going to see here in this question about fasting is really a lack of joy in those who don't know who Jesus is. We can read the Bible in hindsight, read the Gospels in hindsight, and we like to put ourselves in a position where we say, man, if Jesus was here physically, presently amongst us, we would have such great joy. It'd be such great celebration. You know, all the, all the things of this world would just melt away and we would just gaze lovingly at him as we listen to him speak every single word from the mouth of God. But unless the Spirit himself awakens us to the reality of the glory of God, then we won't do that. We will go on continuing following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sun, sons of darkness, the one who uh, roams about like an angel of light and a roaring lion seeking who he can devour, the one who according to 2 Corinthians 4, is trying to blind the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We will be like a Paul, right? Who has to go blind before he can actually see the goodness and the glory of God in Jesus. And so... Even though fasting is a practice we should continue today, there was a point in time, in history, where all fasting could cease. The fulfillment of what should be all of our great desires was here. Especially with these disciples. And, and so they are led by Jesus to enjoy that because there's going to come a time also in history that he physically wouldn't be here. And we would go back to fasting. We'd go back to mourning. We would go back to devastation and desperate desire for his presence. And yet at the same time, does he not promise at the end of this gospel to never leave us nor forsake us? So another thing that we're called to here as we look at this passage is that God is calling for us to desire the physical, tangible reality of being with him. That we aren't looking forward to some sort of spiritual floating around in the sky, that he's actually calling for us to look forward to the real, physical presence of his dwelling with us. That his actual desire is to not only not just restore the Garden of Eden in that physical, personal relationship he enjoyed with his creation there, but he is 
making even a new heavens and a new earth. And in that, he has created a whole new covenant relationship by the blood of his son. So I, I hope that we are always those who are understanding and seeking um, a God who is real, a heaven that is actual, actual place, bodies that will really tangibly be resurrected. We got to increase our appetite for joy and our expectant hope of things to come. And I would argue that if our joy and our expectant hope doesn't increase to the level that we are looking forward to God uh, physically, tangibly with us, then we won't be able to endure the things that we're called to endure in this life. I would say that Paul is exhibit A, well, namely Jesus, but then after him, Paul's exhibit A on, on what that hope looks like. And that 1 Corinthians 15, right, is, is Paul's communication to us through the Spirit that you better be looking forward to an actual resurrection, otherwise, eat, drink, and beat merry, for tomorrow we die. This is all there is. But if there's something more, then we don't have to be disappointed constantly by the false hope that you may get in this world, either through successes or either through money or either through relationships, which are all passing away. But there is an eternal hope that does not pass away. And Jesus coming to earth, Jesus living and dying and being resurrected, presents to us a hope that transcends space and time and circumstance, emotion, that this is real. That uh, Jesus makes sure to mention that God is the God of the living, right? That Abraham and Isaac and Jacob surely have graves that we can go visit and go see, or in that time they were buried, right? They died. But these bodies that are passing away aren't the end of the story. There's, there's more to come for them. So verse 14 of Matthew 9. Then the disciples of John, that would be John the Baptist, came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, or fast often, but your disciples do not fast. Now understand that according to the law, according to the Old Testament, Leviticus 16 and 23 prescribe only one fast a year, and that is uh, Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And the way it's described in the Old Testament is to afflict yourselves or to humble yourselves on that day. But as so often happens, the Pharisees and the Sadducees has, had created over time this extra-biblical tradition that required the Jews to fast twice a week. And so there was a constant external um, 
abstaining from food for them. And this had been transformed even to the degree that they did it to appear more devout and more religious. We know that going all the way back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, right? Verses 16 through 18, where Jesus um, indicts those who would fast simply for external religious reasons or to be seen by people, right? They fast and they look gloomy. They look unkept. They don't wash. They, they put uh, sackcloth and ashes on and they, they want people to see like we're fasting. We're holy people. Look at us. We're not eating. Aren't we awesome? And he communicates in this chapter 6 of Matthew that that does nothing for your soul. That fasting, like praying, should namely be done between you and your Father who sees in secret, and He will reward you. Because what are we fasting for? Well, in the context of verses 14 through 17 in Matthew 9, we are fasting because we desperately desire the presence of God in a very real way. And when we don't have it, we are acknowledging what our sin or the sin of this world has created. And we are also looking forward to when he will make his lasting real presence um, actual. So they're curious that his disciples and him are not following uh, Jewish religion and tradition especially as he assumes to be a rabbi or a teacher, especially as he continues to communicate the awesome reality that he is the Messiah. Then if you're the Messiah, why aren't you doing these things that we do? And Jesus makes them wonderfully aware of who he is. Again, Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So here's another instance of where Jesus is communicating to them that God is with them, that the Emmanuel prophesied in Isaiah, God with us, is him. And in Hosea 2, I believe, you can see God call himself the bridegroom once again. So he's communicating more than just kind of a parable or a or an illustration or a metaphor of, of who he is with his disciples. He is communicating to all of Israel that God has come and he is with you. If God is with you and if his people are uh, most appropriately uh, desiring his presence with them, then why would we mourn? What is there left to mourn? If God has come to be with his people... And if we are allowed to be in his presence, that means all good things, does it not? And so this is a huge revelation of Jesus to those who are inquiring why he is not acting like a proper Jew. It would also seem prideful, right? Because he would be saying basically like, I'm here. And they would recognize him as simply a man. What do you mean? You're God with us. Just stating a fact. Stating the truth. And he also alerts them to the fact that, look, 
there are coming days after what they're enjoying now that I will be taken from them. And then they'll fast. And then they'll mourn. I mean, look, the, the, the way that Jesus was seemingly ripped from their presence in his arrest and, and in his mock trial and crucifixion was devastating. So much so that I would argue that we get doubting Thomas wrong by labeling him doubting Thomas. Thomas was one who spoke up earlier about, you know, Jesus was going to go back into Jerusalem and his disciples at that point in time were like, nah, they want to kill you at this point. Let's not do that. Thomas is like, I'll go with you. And then, and then Thomas is devastated after he's taken from them that Thomas is in this state of mourning. And he's like, no, I want my Lord physically present. Don't you tell me he's here if he's not here. So I think Thomas gets a bad rap. I'm going to help restore his reputation. But I'm serious. He is, I think, a devoted disciple. And he wants to see and know the presence of his Lord once again. And surely, those would have been the days that Thomas, as well as other disciples, would have fasted. Would have so desired their Lord to be with them again. And by the way, remember, those three days, that's before the Spirit came upon them even. I mean, so they are. It's not that God doesn't know them, know where they are, you know, but they don't know that. And I think you can even look forward in that statement, too, to realize, like, look, he's promised to be with us, and that we rejoice, and that we celebrate, and that we trust at all times, surely, but man, do we want to see him. And 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9, communicates that, that you may very well and should love him, even though you haven't seen him. But that's not, that's not the end of the story. In fact, you, you love him. You look forward to him with an expectant hope because you will see him. Aren't we told by Jesus that Abraham even looked forward to his day and he saw it and was glad? We want the physical presence of Jesus and we are so thankful for his spiritual presence with us now. We don't discount that. But the spirit is a down payment. It's a, it's a seal on us for the day of redemption in which we will come to know the culmination uh, of, of that relationship. To the point that when we read about the new heavens and the new earth and the marriage supper of the Lamb in the Revelation, we are to understand that there will be an actual supper an actual joy, an actual breaking the fast that we have had to endure our whole lives here on earth. That for once and forever, His presence with us will be sealed in all reality. And then He gives this example. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wine skins, if it is. The skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But the new wine is put into fresh wine skins, and so both are 
preserved. Jesus is ushering in the inauguration of a messianic kingdom and not extending the legalism or the religious externalism of the Pharisees. He is, he is establishing the new covenant in his blood, which we'll celebrate here in a little bit. And in that, he is, he is making sure that all of God's people know that they can have personal, direct access to him. They are not relating to him through the law. Jesus is fulfilling that. They are not relating to him through a priest who can make good on their atonement. They are personally and actually relating to him. And so why, if Jesus has come to do that, would he add that to all their extra-biblical traditions. He wouldn't. They would understand that it would be as silly as putting a, a, taking a hole in an old garment and putting a new piece of cloth to patch that hole and, and then washing it. It will pull away. It won't work. And I think even the more poignant example is, is the wineskins because... As you've taken the hide off an animal and as you've sewed it together, there's still some suppleness from some of the moisture that could be there from a fresh hide. And so the wine, which is fermented and may continue to ferment, especially maybe in the heat and the sun in, in that wineskin, would continue to build up gases and kind of expand. And if you don't have a supple wineskin, right, then there's nowhere for that to go and it will burst open. But if you do have new skins, and you do have fresh wine, then all is good. The wine is good, it's kept, able to be shared and poured out. But you don't add it to old things that are passing away, that are dried up and of no use. So they're seeing something new. They're seeing the fulfillment of all that Israel has desired since Abraham. Actually, since Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. And you have to cut them a little bit of slack as human beings because you know that this is, this is difficult to wrap your mind around. But as you begin to examine his 12 apostles in particular and the, and the description of the call that we have for some of them, you, you see that he revealed to them that he was him. And they began to rejoice as they realized that, who they're going to follow. And so all of these guys who are with Jesus and, and maybe some of these women, they are, they are seeing that, hey, we are, we are in those days. We are in those days that have been prophesied about from long ago. We are in those days uh, that the prophets um, wrote about and, and searched for and inquired carefully. We are those direct recipients of, of God's fulfillment of his great promises uh, to Israel right now. And 
What is there to mourn? These disciples are seeing uh, God move about in the flesh and do amazing, awesome things. They have already witnessed all of these miracles, the calming storm, the touching lepers and healing them, the, the, the clearing out uh, villages and cities of illnesses. They are seeing him pronounce uh, forgiveness of sins and then kind of back that up by his miracle of, of calling that man to walk. They are uh, in utter amazement. And just logically, they, they can't deny that this is a time of celebration and enjoyment of, of him with us. We even know that as they go to Mary and Martha's house, you even see that contrast there of, of one who tries to continue to work, to work and, and receive commendation from God for her righteousness and taking care of all the dishes and stuff, but that's not... A time, the time that Jesus is here is for celebration, is for enjoying his company and his presence, and certainly we are looking forward to that again. Surely we're looking forward to a day in which we will again gather around him at his feet and we will hear him and listen to him and celebrate him and we will enjoy a, a personal and intimate relationship with him in the flesh. And we have to long for that now. We have to be those who are constantly looking forward with fresh eyes and a fresh hope of what is yet to come. And leaning on and relying on His presence with us now in His Spirit to get us there. To move us in that direction. To remind us again of what He's promised and how He's a God that always fulfills His promises. To trust more and to trust more of him and in him and what he says than what we can do. That's what he's communicating here. And that's what people fail to see. And that's why I tend to agree with what John Piper calls Christian hedonism, that God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him. His disciples, through their lack of fasting, while He's present with them, are communicating that God is with them. They're communicating that Jesus is Him, the Messiah. And so, too, we by our joy, we by our gladness in Him, we by our uh, taking of these elements, the Lord's Supper and in baptism, are communicating that Jesus has come, that the Messiah has been seen, that the Messiah has accomplished His work, and that we look forward again to a time where fasting and mourning is no longer needed. It's not even a thought in heaven. It's a, it becomes an old thing because anytime you want to see him you just look and he's there so we don't want to add anything to the pure and unadulterated joy of seeing Jesus we just want to be able 
with unveiled eyes to look and see his glory. And right now, 1 Corinthians tells us that we see in a mirror dimly. But then fully, as he has seen us fully, so we'll see him. If that joy excites you, if that joy fills your heart, if that is the hope that is in you, then you can surely be sure that that will be fulfilled. If that's not your hope, if that's not your joy, if that's not what causes you to endure all of life, then I pray that God would unveil for you the glories of his gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. That he would render the efforts of the evil one in your life to keep you blind, useless, and powerless, and allow you to see the Messiah who has come and who's coming again. Would you respond to the Lord now and then we'll stand and sing together. you come prepare the table A wandering soul who once was lost, shivering cold in sin's deep frost. Praise again the Savior slain for thee, for by his blood he ransomed me. To thy bread and cup now turn, and remember for whose presence we yearn. The supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night he was betrayed. It is to be observed in his churches to the end of the age as a perpetual remembrance and display of the sacrifice of himself in his death. It is given 
for the confirmation of the faith of believers and all the benefits of Christ's death, their spiritual nourishment and growth in Him, and their further engagement in and to all the duties they owe Him. The supper is to be a bond and pledge of their communion with Christ and each other. This sacred time at the Lord's table is for believers who have rested all their hope on the death and resurrection of Christ. If you are not yet a believer, you should refrain from partaking until you come to faith in Christ. We encourage those of you who are believers to examine your hearts so that you can partake in a worthy manner. If your heart is not right, refrain until you can freely partake. As the bread and the cup are served, we ask that you hold them so that we all partake together. And as uh, we've been doing recently, remember to take a cup of bread and a cup of juice at the same time as they're passed. Uh, would you pray with me for a second? Father, we are glad as your people to come into this moment. Um, we are glad at knowing that your body and your blood have been given. You are reminding us again of the riches of your grace and mercy. So let us cherish this moment to reflect again on what you've done and what you have given to us in a hope yet to come. And Lord, we confess to you that, that we're not worthy and that you make us worthy. Uh, and Lord, we have even things we have fallen into this week um, that are not becoming of those who are called to this table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God.
And on the night he was delivered, he took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then, that last supper, they didn't depart without singing together, so let's stand. And let's close with a...